Hey everyone, Jeremy here. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we're talking to Sylvia Milano, who is a researcher at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and also at the Oxford Internet Institute, where she works on AI ethics. And in particular, she's been focusing lately on the ethics of recommender systems. So we will be talking a lot about recommender systems. And in particular, one of the key areas we'll be zooming into is this question of who the stakeholders are in modern recommender systems. So is it just about the end user? Is it just about the person who interacts with the Twitter app or with Netflix or whatever it may be? Or do we have to start zooming out a little, a little bit more and thinking about companies, thinking about systems, thinking about even societies and civilizations in which these recommender systems and their users are embedded. And the argument that Sylvia is going to make is that, yes, in fact, we do. And there are really interesting ethical and practical questions that arise the moment we recognize that fact. So I think it's fair to say we're in for a whole bunch of really interesting conversations about everything from personal identity to the responsibilities of companies and governments in the context of very powerful recommendation systems. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do as well. Sylvia, thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I'm really thrilled to have you here. We've spoken before once briefly, but I'm really looking forward to kind of diving into things in a little bit more depth here, especially about your work with recommender systems, which is just such a hot topic. Um, the ethical issues with recommender systems, I think, are things we're still, still struggling with. I mean, we've only barely started, really. But I'd love to ask you, before we get into the, the meat and potatoes of it, what was it that made you dive into this field in the first place? How did you get interested in recommender systems, and how did you end up doing the research that you're doing now? Hmm. It's a good question. It's a combination of factors. I I was interested in human-computer interaction and in, yeah, I had a general interest in this area. And I found by reading around uh, that there weren't that many yeah articles written on recommender systems and how uh, this kind of system structure our online interactions and really our digital lives. So that is how I first got an inkling that this is a big topic, but um, currently, yeah, there are so many questions that are unanswered and I thought, hmm, I really want to look into that. <laughs> so it's interesting both from an epistemological side uh, because, uh, well, there are all sorts of questions. For example, how do we know when um, something is relevant to a user? How do we know that uh, something is um, the right recommendation to make. Uh, and also from an ethical side, uh, obviously recommending things seems like a very uh, personal, targeted, individual action, but really has all sorts of social implications. And so ethically, I, I thought it was really under interesting to try to understand and tear these things apart. What is the, the function of recommender systems in our society? Yeah, and it, what keeps striking me every time I, I think about this problem is how, despite the fact that there are all these issues, recommenders obviously are here to stay. They're so important. There really isn't a way around them. I mean, the, the Luddite in me wants to say like, okay, you know, we've got recommenders that are you know, arguably tearing apart the fabric of our society. Let's get rid of them. But the reality is it's, it's almost like, it feels almost like journalism in the sense that no matter what problems there may be with it, the average person doesn't have time to you know, go out and do the legwork of collecting New York Times level coverage of something. And, and we don't have time to collect that kind of information about products. Uh, it kind of seems like it's, it's this, this thing that we have to solve, right? Yeah, that's right. And I would say not just a normal person, any person, you cannot be an expert in every topic. And it would be saying that we can do without recommender systems so at this point would be to say that we can do without all the trove of data and information that we have on the internet yeah we, yes we could we did that we used to leave that historically uh in that scenario but clearly there's so much value in there that we don't want to throw it out uh but uh to transform all these data and information that is available into something that is actually usable and that is relevant to our everyday life and to the way we reason uh, we do need recommender systems that are these things that help us to overcome the information overload, find a, find a path, find a way through all this information through. Yeah, and, and as you've pointed out so well too in, in all your research, I mean, they come at a serious cost. I think a lot of people are almost at a, a gut level 
broadly aware of what that cost looks like. They've seen how their behavior is affected by interactions with things like Twitter, with even product recommendations on Amazon. But could you take a second to kind of unpack some of the specific uh, concerns that you have ethically about the, the impact recommender systems might have and the externalities they might generate more broadly? Well, I, I propose a taxonomy for uh, thinking about the ethical impacts of recommender systems. And I'm currently building on the taxonomy to answer the kind of questions that you're asking. Uh, so in this way of looking at them, we should distinguish between impacts that recommender systems have uh, to uh, the utility of different stakeholders. Uh, so the consequence of recommending certain items, certain um, information to users, um, how does that impact uh, the utility of say the users themselves that consume the items or, or the information or the providers who writes the, the information, uh, the system itself, the platform that hosts uh, the recommender systems or society more at large. Uh, so this would be, we, we can think of it in terms of utility or uh, how the consequences are evaluated from the point of view of these different stakeholders as we might call them. Uh, this is one dimension of evaluation. Another dimension uh, would be more deontological, if you want, something that uh, has to do with the action of the system itself. So whether these actions infringe some rights, for example, of the users, whether, whether it encroaches on user autonomy, whether it violates some rights, uh, this is something that we might not be able to cash it out in terms of the consequences of the recommendation, but it may be that the action itself is problematic. So I propose to look at, uh, at the ethical impacts in terms of these uh, two broad dimensions. And there are several, um, several challenges that immediately come to mind and we can immediately see once we see things in this way. So for, for example, on the utility side, on the consequentialist evaluation side, um, there are all the things to do with, for example, how accurate these recommendations are, whether they, they promote the utility and the profits, for example, of the platform, of the providers of the items that are recommended and of the users themselves. Uh, so these are a very broad host of considerations. Um, there are also considerations that are more uh, that have more to do with uh, fairness and are more at the level of a system. So, for example, whether the fact that we construct recommender systems in a certain way, say in the case of news recommenders, um, whether some narratives are foregrounded more and why and what are the impacts on our society? Yeah, no, I, I think there's so much there's so much there on the right side. This is something that always occurs. So, so my dad's a lawyer and I would actually get into, um, especially when I was in undergrad, like studying quantitative stuff, I got really frustrated with the way um, he described the, the process, especially in criminal law, of coming to the conclusion of like guilty or not guilty with respect to a particular uh, accused person. So he would always tell me that juries are apparently not supposed to think in terms of probabilities. There's this like, obviously there's this injunction that someone is guilty, uh, that will be found guilty if the jurors think that they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But the moment you try to quantify that, the moment you try to say, uh, okay, yeah, that means this threshold of probability, that apparently is like, that's a no-no, at least in, in the tradition of English law that my, my dad was familiar with because we're Canadian. And that always frustrated me because it was like, somehow, if we're gonna make progress as a civilization, it feels like we really need to be able to quantify what rights are. And in the context of a recommender system, that seems like something that's really difficult to do. Is that something that's, uh, first off, is that a, a problem that you think like is real or is it something that I'm making up for myself here? Uh, and, and secondly, are there potential solutions or is there a body of thought on that issue? It's a very great question and uh, difficult to answer. At the moment, my thinking on this is that we really need to have this forefront in our mind. I don't have a solution to propose yet, <laughs> but we do really need to have this front. Recommender systems really are social infrastructures. And so we need to think about how they impact people's rights, how the infrastructure works, uh, should be evaluated in terms also of how 
um, it promotes individual rights, human rights, or the the good functioning of society. <laughs> yeah, and I guess we got to define what what those things are too. Exactly, like <laughs> but that's that's tricky. Yeah, it's certainly much easier to uh, to adopt a consequentialist evaluation, which is what I have been um, working on for the most part, partly for uh, purely yeah practical reasons <laughs> and can you actually can you elaborate on that so for for people who aren't philosophers or who don't have that kind of training um so could you explain consequentialism and, and how it's all set up in this context very broad definition of consequentialism uh would be that uh what matters in the evaluation of an action is uh the consequences that it brings about so for example if you have a choice between uh, two actions a and b what matters to their evaluation is the consequences of A and B. And the idea is that consequentialism tells you to bring about the most good. Mm -hmm. um, so you rank the consequences of act A and B in terms of how good they are. You choose the act that, is, uh, that has the best consequence. Now, this is a very general uh, idea. It has to be cashed out in terms of how do we measure the, the goodness of different consequences or states. Um, yeah, so there are various things that need to be then finessed and, uh, and defined more, more carefully, but this is the broad idea. And in the context of recommender systems, we, we are asking, given a recommendation that is given, um, how, let's see what the consequences of making this recommendation are for the user who receives the recommendation for the other um, possible stakeholders in this recommendation. Let's try to quantify this goodness. Mm -hmm. and, and then on the basis of this, we can rank the different possible recommendations. This is a broadly consequentialist approach to evaluating recommenders. So I, I find that really interesting because like as somebody with sort of more of a, I guess, a quantitative machine learning type background, consequentialism sounds so profoundly intuitive to me that then my next question is like what what alternative framework could i even use if not consequentialism like what would be some of the the leading alternatives an alternative to consequentialist frameworks in ethics is uh, the ontological frameworks on in this tradition uh, actions are evaluated not just in terms of their consequences but on the on the quality of the action itself mm. So, for example, a very famous consequentialist is, of course, Kant. He gives this very famous example of, um, of a murderer coming to your door <laughs> and knocking at your door and he's looking for, for somebody that he wants to kill. He's coming with a, his weapon and you are like, it's fully transparent what his intentions are. And you know where, you happen to know where this person is. Uh, and so the question is, should you or should you not tell him? And famously Kant says, well, actually, you should always tell the truth. That's a duty that you have. So in this case, you should, if asked by this murderer at your door where the person that is looking for is, you should tell him. Obviously, you cannot arrive at this answer by evaluating the goodness, well, the, the utility of the consequence, because clearly the consequence that, it, that you can foresee if you tell the murder, the truth is a very bad one where uh, this person that you know will, will be murdered. <laughs> so the idea here is that uh, the action is evaluated not in terms of the consequence, but on the quality of the act. And for example, for Kant, lying is something that you should never do. There's, it, it, it's your duty not to lie. So that's interesting because I guess it, it places, um, I mean, pretty intuitively, it places a lot of religious convictions about morality and ethics into, into that bucket where you'd say, well, you can be consequentialist in every aspect of your life, except when it comes to, for example, uh, observing the Sabbath. So like consequentialism for everything, plus also make sure that you take Friday evening off and, and Saturday morning off or whatever, things like that. Well, you could say you should never, um, yeah, intentionally, or you should never deceive somebody or you should never uh, break a promise. That could be a constraint that is built. Um, Actually, if we think about recommender systems, uh, say, for example, in the context of uh, news recommending, that could be a constraint that would be relatively intuitive, right? <laughs> say, yeah. you, should never, you should never lie. <laughs> 
Well, and that, that itself is interesting because it already starts to introduce, I think, the, the looming specter of one of the greatest challenges of all of this, which is we have, I mean, this kind of utilitarian consequentialist perspective seems to be, it's almost as if it's not tied down to anything firm. I mean, it, the consequences can be interpreted differently by different people depending on social context. Uh, what we consider to be good today is very different from what we used to consider being good. I always think about the distinction between like the present version of me and then the future version of me who will be changed by my interaction with the system. And if I have this free floating like ethic of consequentialism, in a way, this is sort of hard to describe, but like before I ever used Twitter, my political views were some set of beliefs. And then after I used Twitter, my political views were a different set of beliefs. I changed as a person from that interaction. And the future version of me obviously thinks that they're right. But the past version of me thought they were right too. And it's almost as if the, the rights of the past version of me were violated in some weird way or, or could have been, depending on what I was exposed to. Um, but from a consequentialist standpoint, at every step, you know, maybe it made sense. I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm articulating this properly, but... Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, a great, uh, that's a great example and a great question. So I think something that is uh, perhaps implicit in a lot of research into recommender systems, at least uh, when, we, uh, when we are thinking of recommenders as trying to um, predict user, user preferences, is this idea that preferences may be something underlying and fixed. So we have our preferences and we merely lack enough information to know what we are looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the task of a recommender here is to help us out because they are able to collect more information to find out the, the items that are relevant to us based on our preferences, right? This is a natural way of maybe thinking about this problem. And I think it has a long history, inherits a long history from economic, uh, economic thinking, where uh, it really ties to the, the analysis of uh, preferences in economics. So here, the idea is that when you change your political beliefs after using Twitter on the basis of these recommendations, this would be because now you have more information. <laughs> And on the basis of this additional information, you have refined not really your, uh, your underlying preferences, but the, their expression. So now you have more information and you have narrowed down what these preferences entail. Now, <laughs> this is a, one way of looking at it, but I think it's also very intuitive and it speaks to many people's experience that in fact, our preferences do not feel as fixed and immutable and that maybe your experience of using Twitter and coming to contact with different views and recommendations is that actually this can influence your preferences, which may be more malleable than, uh, than we could have thought uh, and respond to the, the information that you have, not just by updating your beliefs and giving you um, yes, a better information about the world, which helps you to narrow down uh, what things to prefer, but not really changing your underlying preferences, but really your underlying preferences are also updated in the process. This is much trickier to account for. So, and you're right in pointing out that there's some tension with the consequentialist evaluation, because of course, if the preferences are fixed, then we could think, for example, of uh, a system that satisfies user preferences over time as maximizing their utility. Right. But if the preferences change, we need to also figure out how this, how this affects uh, the, the measurement of <laughs> how we evaluate the system over time. So if I recommend something to you at uh, T1 uh, and your preferences at T1 are such and such, I may do a good recommendation for that time, but the same recommendation at a later time when your preferences have changed in part as a result of your interaction with the system might no longer be utility maximizing. So it's a, yeah, I think it's a, it's a profound issue in philosophy there, there, it's something that is debated. And I just want to mention the fact that uh, there's, a, there's a long tradition actually in philosophy coming from feminist philosophy that has pointed out how this traditional analysis of preferences is, is very limited. And in fact, people, 
people's preferences are influenced by their environment and their interactions uh, with other social actors. And this can have good and bad effects. Uh, so I think that there are several philosophical traditions that can be brought in to speak to this particular issue. And um, yeah, it would be very important for researchers in computer science to, to pay attention to this and to broaden a bit uh, their outlook. Yes, because framing the problem of recommenders solely from the point of view of individual users under the assumptions that their preferences are fixed is it's very limiting. <laughs> Yeah, by some weird coincidence, I, I was uh, I was looking into some of the like philosophical literature on identity, N not not from a like political um, perspective or anything like that. Just just like literally like how do you track the identity of an individual through time? Like, am, am I actually to be thought of as the same individual as I was, you know, five minutes ago? People often say things like, "I've changed. I'm a different person now." Like, do you mean that literally or, 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 you know, and in that case, what's the nature of your legal responsibility for prior actions? How could you be held accountable for what you do in the future and so on? In the context of recommenders, it's almost like you, you have this debate between your own right at this exact moment to impose your preferences on the future version of yourself. Like if, if you wanted to say, look, there's certain things about me that I would be disgusted if those things changed. Like, I would, I would never want to uh, be the kind of person who likes the color black or something. And then you look forward in time, like to 10 years. And, you know, if, if you had a magic algorithm that could show you, like, if you interact with, with Twitter for the next 10 years, every, like all your clothes are going to going to be black. You're going to be like painting your apartment black and you're going to love it. Like what right do you have to kind of change course on that? That seems like such a, a thorny question. I mean, I, I, do you have any sense of, you pointed to a couple of examples, I guess, of the ways people are thinking about this, but is there any connection to the kind of um, philosophical identity literature that might be relevant here? Yes, for sure. <laughs> it just opens up so many questions that are really fascinating. And um, I really like some of the analyses that are coming out of the philosophical literature more recently in terms of thinking about changing selves in terms of maybe a group agent. So mm. think, think of yourself as a, as a collection of, of versions of you over time. And the thing is, when you, take a, when you consider an action at, at any time, the consequences of this action will span to your future selves. Right. Yeah. And so this idea would be to um, to take into account the interests of your future self. And well, you, you might have a lot of uncertainty about which future selves will actually materialize. And this might actually also depend on what action you choose at this point in time. And so there might be ways of conceptualizing this problem in a way that gives some guidance as to how to decide when yeah. when you have changing preferences and in this sense yourself isn't fixed. So this is a way that I think is very, um, is very interesting to look at this problem. Of course, the more general problem of personal identity uh, goes back to very ancient times. To, you know, the philosopher in ancient Greek, Heraclitus said, uh, we don't cross the same river twice. And I guess the idea is that, yeah, everything is in flux, everything changes. And in this sense, um, this is a very profound problem that, uh, yeah, maybe we will never find a solution or, or maybe some very bright philosophers will, but I don't think we need to crack the very, very hard philosophical problem in order to build good recommenders, which is a good thing because otherwise we will basically be stuck. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, true. It's, it's always like, it's always useful to draw that distinction between what problems we're facing today and then the problems we might face, you know, 10 years down the road as technology improves and we might actually like, be forced to face some of these questions head on, fortunately for now, <laughs> a little bit more contained. Um, it, but in terms of, of that paradigm, so, so you, um, you put forward this idea of the multi-stakeholder framework in your research, this idea of kind of zooming out and saying, okay, you know, we no longer just have like the user's immediate interests in mind, let's say, we have a kind of a broader collection of different actors and stakeholders in the situation. Um, you alluded, I think, to some of the, the stakeholders in this model, but um, I guess, would you mind expanding a little bit on the multi-stakeholder framework and how it changes the way you've been thinking about recommender systems? The idea here is that a multi-stakeholder um, recommender system is one that uh, takes into account the interests 
of multiple stakeholders when formulating a recommendation. And this is in contrast with a paradigm for recommender system research that uh, has been the central one for a, for a relatively long time, which uh, only takes, um, we can call it the user-centered mm -hmm. approach, where users essentially are the only stakeholder. So in this older, more traditional, if you want, paradigm, the task of recommender system is to find good items where good items are items that are beneficial to the user of the recommender system. In the multi-stakeholder um, version, uh, instead of only taking into account user interests, we also think it's uh, necessary to take into account the interests of other stakeholders, which uh, I think should uh, include at least three other categories. The first two um, are relatively already inside the, the recommender system ecosystem, if you want, which are uh, the system itself, so the platform, and providers of the items. So let's expand a bit on, on both, perhaps. The providers uh, are whoever the parties that make the items that are then recommended available. So in the case, for example, of uh, an e-commerce website, the providers might be uh, the sellers who yeah, put the items, the different uh, items on sale on the platform. Or in the case of news recommenders, it might be content producers. So whoever writes, for example, a blog or, or an article, um, or video recommenders, it might be um, whoever produces uh, a video. These providers have interest in the recommendation, obviously. So if you are, for example, a seller on Amazon or eBay, you have an interest in your item being recommended. And not only that, maybe only you, want it, you also want it to recommend it to the right people who might actually yeah. be interested in it and buying it. Um, so clearly you have a stake in the recommendation. Um, and then, uh, as I said, the other stakeholder that, uh, needs to be taken into account is the platform or the system itself. So obviously, in order to be viable, there, there needs to be some, some return for yeah. the system itself. So for example, if you are operating a, an e-commerce recommender system, you want this to be, um, yeah, to, to have some profit uh, out of it. Mm. Same if you are a news recommender system. Uh, otherwise, this would simply not be a viable business. <laughs> yeah. So we have users, uh, providers, and, and the system. And I also propose that we should consider society uh, as a whole, as a stakeholder in recommendation. And the reason for this uh, is that although it's more difficult to, uh, to conceptualize uh, how society has an interest in how recommendations are made, very, very often, the the behavior of a recommender system has broader social impacts and this would be it would be hard to tie them to the interest of particular stakeholders that are uh, within that are operating within the recommender system for two reasons for one that is more straightforward is that because very often <laughs> even people and groups that are not that are not on the recommender systems can be impacted by its actions so for example, even if you don't use Amazon for, for your shopping, uh, yeah. you might be impacted by its popularity. <laughs> because for example, if you operate a small business, then you might really feel the impact of Amazon's popularity. So even if you are not a direct stakeholder in the recommender system itself, your interests are also impacted. And society as a whole, often uh, we see systemic effects of these recommenders. The most obvious case would be with news recommenders, but this can be present in other cases as well, where the fact that the algorithm is tweaked in one way or another leads to the popularity and the distribution of different views uh, that can have an effect, uh, for example, on political events or yeah. Um, what people think in general and the functioning of our societies. So these things are extremely important and obviously very relevant to the evaluation of recommender systems. So I think they, uh, they should be taken into account and the way in which uh, we can do it is by including a stakeholder as 
representing the point of view of society itself. And okay, so now we have four stakeholders and the idea with the multi-stakeholder system is that once we have identified the stakeholders, there are two things that we can do better than if we didn't. One is to define better evaluation of recommender system. So what metrics can we uh, define to evaluate the, the impacts of recommenders? And secondly, we can also better understand what kind of optimization problem we are, uh, we are, we are dealing with. So what are the kind of objectives that we are kind to, trying to maximize here? And uh, in the definition of this, we can try to take into account the objectives that all the different stakeholders might be uh, trying to, uh, to achieve. Well, that, yeah, and it's so fascinating to look at it from that perspective because it really does, I think, open up the, the deep and important questions then once you start taking that perspective. One of which I could imagine being, you know, when you're building a recommender system as a personal project or inside a company, you like it's convenient to focus on a user-centric approach because that's what gives you really fast iteration time right you can measure a number like user satisfaction really easily you know do you how many items do users put in their shopping carts how many movies do they watch that sort of thing and the cycle times start to get longer and longer as you start zooming out and saying okay then from the standpoint of the company like how profitable is this recommender system you've got to wait to see what the costs and benefits are, you know, maybe amortized over like a quarter or a year, or who knows. And then to broader society, those timelines get really long so that the measurement process becomes challenging, maybe prohibitive. Is that a, a reasonable like issue with the next step now of implementing this in the wild? Yes, I, I like this question. I think this points to uh, what are reasonable and useful choices of what, uh, what we call levels of abstraction in conceptualizing. Hmm. Uh, the problem of recommender that recommender systems address. Uh, so some choice of level of abstraction, for example, user-centered approach would go more naturally with a shorter time frame, as you said, yeah. uh, for evaluation, whether, whereas uh, levels of abstraction that include uh, social evaluation would require also different data and very probably longer um, timeframes for evaluation. So that's certainly an interesting, I think, research problem. Yeah, it, it's like even in a, a business context, it, it's funny, the, the, the availability of data, it's exactly what you said there. Like it, sometimes the, the kind of data that you need to evaluate a particular model or a particular product just isn't available. So you end up looking for proxies and those proxies are not always, I mean, they can become pathological there was, um, there's an example I've given, I think, twice on the podcast, because just because I, I find it, I find it very funny and very instructive when it comes to evaluating human behavior. And that is, somebody once said, and I, I can't remember who, but if you A-B test a website and iterate often enough, eventually, sooner or later, any website will become a porn site. And that's a, that's a joke, but it's also, I think it says something deep about measurement and optimization for human preference that you know, depending on your time horizon, if you're user-centric and you're really focused on satisfying immediate limbic user needs or wants, you're going to end up with a product that isn't very cortical, that isn't very forward-looking, very deliberate, and probably with a lot of side effects that you're not thinking about. What I, what I really like about the multi-stakeholder approach is it implicitly says, no, 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 like you're now looking at one corner of this equation. There's a much bigger kind of set of terms to factor in here. Yeah, yes, I really like the way you're, you're putting it, and your example is certainly striking. Uh, I think there are several things that can be uh, like taken out of it. One is uh, questioning, well, of course, you're looking for proxies, but um, proxies for, for what exactly? For uh, user preferences? That, and if, if the behavior of the users that you observe uh, is really taken to uh, to reveal their underlying preferences. What can we say of cases like this, or cases where also it might be possible that users might have um, more considered preferences? So if they were really aware of how the the system is, how the testing in this case uh, is uncovering uh, some 
revealed preferences, would they want to change it perhaps? Would they want to have a level of control and agency over how the system evolves and how, yeah, what, what is shown to them? Do they want to act on their own tastes? This is something that I think is a very fascinating question. Um, and then, of course, there's also the problem of nudging, whether in, in cases like this, whether it's acceptable or, or ethically um, yeah, proper to nudge people in ways that may go counter their revealed choice behavior. <laughs> so yeah. do you think, for example, that you should be shown more, say you're on a e-commerce website, more options that are environmentally friendly and that are more sustainable? Even, even if yeah, your purchasing behavior indicates that you are really after the cheapest products and are not paying attention to environmental sustainability. Do you think that there's a, from this conversation, I think one of the, it almost seems like one of the parameters that we've been alluding to um, is like implicitly time horizon, where it almost seems as though, like if I'm optimizing for my happiness one second from now, I'm going to be doing, carrying out a certain set of actions that probably follows something like a path of least resistance. So I'm going to be doing the easiest thing at every incremental time step. And if you, I mean, if you add that up over a long period of time, eventually I end up like, I don't know, in a casino somewhere gambling away my life savings. I mean, it, it really does kind of follow the limbic system in that sense. But if that time horizon gets lengthened and I start to say, okay, I have now like a fiduciary obligation to myself 10 minutes from now. Well, okay, you know, maybe 10 minutes from now, I'm doing something a little bit different. As you start extending that time horizon, pretty soon you get into things like foregoing present value for future value and so on. And factoring in, I mean, it's almost like in the process of doing that, you're paying homage to your former self who set this course of action in motion all that time ago. Like, you know, I, I graduated from my undergrad because of a decision made by myself that I honored four years before I started the degree. And that person, knew that this was going to be a painful transition and every incremental step I decided to say yeah you know there's a path of least resistance which is dropping out and lying on the couch but I'm not going to go in that direction it almost seems like what this framework does is it it starts to introduce that time horizon I wonder if that's a, a useful parameter to use to sort of well to parameterize different recommender systems and sort of the ethical implications of each here's my current maybe thinking around around this I think you're you're touching on very profound issues in uh, about uh, intertemporal choice. And again, are we the same person as yeah. we were? And the fact that recommender systems are often um, giving recommendations that are targeted at us on the basis of the current query or our current, our current interaction of, uh, with the system implies a very, very short uh, time frame. So this would be really a path of least resistance. For example, if the system is interested in maximizing the time you spend on the platform mm -hmm. or uh, how, yeah, you optimize your clicking behavior, uh, this can really tap onto the path of least resistance, what seems most gratifying uh, to the user at the present time. But really, this is not what is in the best interest of the user. Uh, for um, a longer period of time or what is socially uh, best. Mm. And I think there are several dimensions to this. So ethically, of course, there's the problem of choosing the right level of, uh, of abstraction so that we are capturing really the right level of granularity for what is the user's interest. Mm -hmm. So a very short uh, time frame uh, seems wrong because, or at least maybe it depends on the applications, but in many applications it seems wrong uh, because maximizing your immediate um, gratification may mean that you forego uh, other goods that you would value more highly, but yeah. that require more restraint from. Um, so for example, if we try to maximize the amount of time you spend on a video streaming platform, that might really be something that you, in the moment you enjoy, but you might regret. Uh, so. But on the other hand, choosing a very, very long time horizon might be impractical for uh, reasons that we don't have uh, as much data and also it's uh, more difficult to frame the problem. And also uh, it could be 
problematic because that means that we are tying um, the evaluation of what is good for you to your current opinion and this may change over time and so there must be a way of, uh, of finding the right spot. Um, so that's a very interesting that's a very interesting problem. It's really fascinating from a practical, like a, a design standpoint, a systems design standpoint. You know, if you're, if you're a startup building recommender systems, like what does this imply? And it also, one of the things that strikes me is like, we kind of have a, a way of accounting for uh, long-term user preferences of the kind that we're talking about. Let's say long, long T, long delta T. Um, uh, preferences versus the shorter ones. If you go to Twitter, for example, you can always change your settings. Um, if you go to Amazon, I'm sure you can change your settings there as well. I, th I feel like we what we've done is we've abstracted away the long-term part of this, the part where we go, what kind of person do I want to let this platform turn me into? And we sort of move that into the settings part. The problem is that our interactions almost invariably, like when I go on to Twitter, I don't start at my settings page. I start in inundated in the sea of opinion and virality. And, and it's also these, um, these memes that are being floated around. Everybody's trying to persuade me. I don't start with my long-term self in mind framed sort of right in front of me. But there is, I guess, technically that niche area where, yes, I mean, I could go to settings and start to define my experience more broadly. I, w I wonder, um, from a practical standpoint, if that might be part of this, like, as a recommendation for, for companies even to say, look, settings maybe should be something you respect a little bit more, either by reminding people to look at their settings periodically if, they, if they're concerned about what's happening to their attention span, their experience on the platform, that sort of thing. Does that seem like a, a reasonable extrapolation here? That seems reasonable. I think also that, that um, while it's very important and valuable that platforms give you some some choice on how you, yeah, you can go to the settings phase, uh, page and, uh, and, and see how the system is, um, at least a little bit, yeah. <laughs> how the system is <laughs> modeling you and, and you can make some changes there. Uh, it does feel a bit like a chore. Uh, yeah. It's not, so I don't think the issue is that uh, we should have more, uh, it would be good to have more access and, uh, and, and yeah, have more control over the settings, but also having that would not necessarily solve many of the issues that we currently have. It needs to be more front and center and part of the user experience. Mm -hmm. So I think a, a good um, an example that I, at least I like is um, how some recommender systems that do seem to be uh, working well in empowering users and giving a more a sense of autonomy and control over how the system works for them and with them uh, helping them um, develop um, their recommendations is um, a case of a, a recommender system for uh, music and i think that's a very that's a very interesting case where uh, the system is uh, designed in such a way that users really uh, can interact with it and by seeing how it responds to their listening behavior learn about their own tastes and can also learn how to influence how the recommendations are made right this may be a way that people interact with spotify or other uh, or other platforms uh, all i'm saying is that in this case you have not only uh, we should have not only the ability to access the controls, but we should have like active incentive to do so, and we should be part of that of that activity. It shouldn't be so as long yeah. as it it remains something that that you have to do, like um, like do the laundry or do yeah. these other things. That seems like a, an extra burden. That is not really uh, something that feels like is paying off for us or that is an interesting part of the experience that we have online. But it really can be. It really can be a way of not only getting like recommendations that are gratifying, but also learning how to, yeah, learning about ourselves, how yeah. we interact with different things and how these things bring us gratification and having the sense that we can influence this process. This is very important because essentially, I really want to stress this, Recommender systems, uh, although 
users are always front and center. They are a social infrastructure. Losing sight of all this means that we lose a lot of accountability and agency over how, um, how social interactions over these systems develop. This, I, I think, very, very important. And definitely, I, I think it would be such a great news if uh, companies and developers that build recommender systems had this more uh, in mind when they design it. So the fact that not only you, you need to give users more control for privacy reasons or because it's, like, um, it's good practice, but also because it really enhances the, uh, the experience of a recommender. Yeah, I, and I really do wonder actually if, you know, to what degree long-term profits are affected by this kind of behavior. You know, we, we've, seen, we've seen Twitter come under fire for, um, for you know, various political division stuff, uh, things, and then and Facebook likewise. It seems like by optimizing for the, the short-term preferences and, and not thinking in the way that you're describing here, what we've got now is an ecosystem that's starting to at least be viewed in different terms. And we've, I've seen people start to liken Instagram used to smoking and social media to smoking. You know, we have the, uh, the not the social network, but whatever that movie was. Um, anyway, the, the big one on Netflix. The social about, dilemma. The yeah. social dilemma. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we're starting to actually talk about these things. And I imagine that that's going to affect the bottom line of these companies over long periods of time, which in a way, we might, I, might just be Goodhart's law in action, basically. They've optimized for short-term um, reward, and they thought that was a good measure. They thought that was the thing to optimize for, but they're learning that actually in the really long term is decoupled from sustainability and, and sustainable growth. I, I, I mean, I, I hope that's the case. One of my concerns is that maybe, like maybe you just get so much of a competitive advantage that it kind of washes out those long-term effects. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. Maybe this speaks more to the business side of the equation, but... Yeah, this certainly speaks more to the business side of the equation, uh, of which I am less of an expert. And uh, I certainly do hope that it, it works out for, for the good of all, all of us, uh, that we move away from short-term um, a short-term outlook and trying to maximize short-term gains. I think there are parallels also um, in even looking inside recommender systems and some of the problems that are appreciated even by um, current platforms. So say one uh, that is very prominent is the fact that they can uh, give rise to echo chambers or also different kind of uh, feedback loop effects. Um, and the fact that some uh, popular items on uh, on several types of recommender systems can have a disproportionate exposure. Can there, there, there can be cycles where, mm. uh, yeah, something that is popular gets recommended even more, and and this is widely uh, widely perceived to be a, a big problem. One of the reasons I think is that. That, that give rise to these kind of things is precisely this focus on the short term. So the idea that if you're a user and you're logging in, um, then it's a safer bet for you <laughs> to be shown something that is popular. It might yeah. be correlated with the quality uh, because you might think uh, actually that, yeah, you, you could formalize this problem and try to prove that if many people have liked this, this thing, this, this item, then it's more likely to, to have a good quality. Uh, but in the case of recommender systems, this obviously gives rise to pathological effects because this uh, wisdom of the crowd type of uh, extracting value from, from the fact that many people have liked it uh, works uh, if, uh, if everybody has access to all the information about what things there are. Mm -hmm. uh, and if observing that you like an item um, is independent of whether it was recommended to you. But obviously, this is not the case. So yeah. instead, we have these feedback effects where trying to cash in on the fact that an item is popular uh, by inferring that, therefore, it must be good quality actually uh, yeah, leads us to uh, instances where even items that are bad quality, for example, because they are 
fake news or things that are not genuinely relevant get recommended more and more because they have been uh, they have been seen uh, and interacted with more users in the past. So this is also, I think, a case where we have to decide whether to focus on the short term uh, interest or look at the problem in a more diachronic light. Uh, so short term, it might well be that the best shot that you have is taking the popular item. Yeah. Uh, but this, this degrades the whole system. So now the thing that you chose, you chose only because it's popular and your choice doesn't really reveal anything of interest to the, to the system itself and other users that come after you. Simply reinforcing a signal that was, uh, yeah. So how can we instead take a more long-term approach and, and try to preserve uh, the information? <laughs> and so this also might mean that users themselves need to be more uh, need to have more responsibility. And um, this might be something that, uh, yeah, that might be difficult maybe for users to accept or for a recommender system provider to, to explain that sometimes recommendations can be, uh, so users are also <laughs> responsible for maintaining the quality of the system itself. The fact yeah. that, you, that you interact or like with a certain item is sending a signal back and is influencing who else and how much uh, this item will be recommended to others. So you do have some sort of responsibility towards, um, towards others. And therefore, yeah. <laughs> this needs to be taken into account in the recommendation and in how we learn from user behavior. Well, and there's so many differences too from platform to platform. I mean, like looking at Twitter, for example, you know, bots plausibly accounted for, I, I spoke to somebody who suspected that circa 2016, he thought that maybe most of the activity on Twitter was bot activity. I'm not sure how, how that's translated into 2020 terms, but I imagine it's only gotten worse. Um, to that extent, you know, you've got Twitter that has this universe of, of, of constellation of problems, Facebook with another, and then you've got Instagram and you've got Snapchat and you've got Amazon. At a certain point, I mean, I guess one of the challenges for any kind of policy action or, or government regulation of these things is that you, you need such, such a quick, thoughtful response that... Um, which you know, governments often just aren't tooled to do. There just aren't the kinds of, of technical or ethical thinkers there who can respond quickly. So do you think this is an area where it's basically all on companies and on individuals to try to turn things around? Or do governments have a role to play in trying to internalize some of the externalities that are generated by these systems? Mm, great question. I do think that there's a, there's a role to play for institutional actors. Um, for the simple reason that um, this may be, so placing responsibility for these on users may be unfair for the reason that users have very little information uh, and very little time also to invest on, on figuring out how, um, yeah, how the systemic effects of the systems they interact with will play out. Uh, for, for society. So what can be the case is that users can be made more responsible and informed about how recommendations are made. Uh, recommendation can be made more transparent and this can have a positive effect in giving users more control over the trajectory. But this uh, cannot mean that users are really tasked with policing uh, the good functioning of, of a system. That, can be that, so you, you could, for example, signal that a certain account may be a bot or maybe um, exhibiting uh, suspicious uh, behavior, but really as a user, you're not in a best position to do that often because you only see a very limited fragment of that account's activity and you only have a very limited uh, appreciation of how this can have negative effects. On the other hand, giving all these responsibilities to platforms to sort it out themselves also clearly has very, very serious problems and issues. Right? One is that uh, we might not want platforms to be the arbiters of what, uh, of what is good behavior online. 
we might not want platforms to decide what kind of uh, what kind of accounts or what kind of speech to to censor, uh, or we might not even want platforms to decide how to structure a marketplace. Uh, yeah, maybe there there should be limits to that. So neither platforms or users can be expected to really. So they can be uh, expected to take more responsibility, uh, but they cannot be expected to solve the problem. So really, uh, I do think that institutional actors need to step in. And the way they might do it is by designing regulation that might make it easier for, uh, for external actors to observe what is going on on these platforms and intervene. Okay, so that's interesting. I was just going to ask, you know, if, it, if it's going to be, because you said institutional actors, you didn't say government, which I thought was really interesting. And I know, obviously, you work at the Future of Humanity Institute. So it's sort of like this interesting uh, middle ground between, you know, it's not government policy, but it's also not a private sector thing. It's, it's somewhere in between. Are you seeing things like the partnership on AI or different kind of uh, organizations that might have the technological capacity to intervene and the policy wisdom without necessarily the, the baggage, the institutional baggage of slow moving governments? Um, do you see those as, as the, the vehicle to, to make this happen? Yeah. I. I do think that uh, civil society should have a much greater role uh, in regulating technology. Now, I'm not a, uh, yeah, I'm not a political theorist, and I, 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 I can speak as a, <laughs> as a philosopher here. Yeah. Uh, I, I do think that uh, civil society needs to be uh, valorized more. Uh, there are several reasons. Uh, so, governments can. Uh, can aid this by designing regulation that empowers civil society to have more oversight. I'm thinking especially of social media platforms where recommender systems clearly have such an impact in, in, in shaping, uh, yeah, for example, political discourse. We, have, we are seeing this more and more, but also marketplaces. Like um, At the moment, one big issue there is that uh, the systems are, um, the algorithms that power these systems are proprietary uh, and cannot be directly observed. Right. So as we as we were saying, users have a very limited um, knowledge of what is going on because you only see a very little fragment of, of the whole system. Platforms cannot be expected to take on the whole responsibility, both because there's a conflict of interest and because they might not have the right capacity, the right capabilities. But for civil society to come in, and here I want to say institutional actors, and I want to remain neutral about whether they are um, government affiliated or uh, yeah. civil society more broadly, need to have a role in, need to be able to uh, like audit these systems and observe how they actually work. Uh, and in this way, they can also empower individual users and other stakeholders to make sense of their online experiences. So for example, if I am um, a civil society organization or a research team that wants to um, study how uh, information, uh, for example, about vaccination programs is distributed online, I might want to have, I might need to have access to, uh, to how the, uh, so for example, a social media feed is targeting different pieces of information to users when they log in to their, to their social media uh, account. Mm -hmm. There's various ways in which uh, uh, this can be done. And at the moment, uh, these are very, very restrictive. So for example, asking users to share their, uh, their data and asking users to, yeah, uh, to give uh, external researchers access to what they see online is not, is not currently permitted, partly because of privacy regulation. Uh, but it's, it's essential if we want to have a, an overall picture and be able to yeah. Yeah, see how, how the algorithm uh, that is uh, making the recommendation is impacting how the information is spread. And then if we want to measure the social impact of the same algorithm. At the moment, we can only see the effects after or yeah or we can try to reconstruct it's likely uh yeah it's likely contribution but this needs to be done much much more transparently and in a way that it can be audited so yeah it, it 
in in this uh, the, the role of governments would actually be pretty central in allowing so in writing legislation that uh, that makes this that makes this possible well the one fascinating thing i find with all this is no matter no matter which which direction you point yourself in when when looking at these systems inevitably you end up opening up a can of worms and there's, you know, there's questions for governments, there are questions for philosophers, there are questions for startup people. So I really appreciate you stopping by and sharing your really fascinating perspective on all this stuff. If people are interested in following your research, following your work and your thinking on this, where should they go? Uh, so uh, they can go to the, uh, to the Future of Humanity Institute website or to my own personal website to follow updates on my work. Uh, and also uh, follow some uh, uh, follow the work that is coming out of the governance of emerging technologies project at the Oxford Internet Institute, where I'm collaborating with um, other researchers, including Sandra Wachter and uh, Brent Mitterstadt and and others in researching uh, more generally the, the the societal impacts of of new technologies like recommender systems. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sylvia. We'll make sure we include those links too in the, the blog post that'll come with the podcast here. So thanks for stopping by. Really appreciate it. Very fun conversation. Thanks for having me.